It is hard to believe, though. Today, today is the first Sunday of Advent. So it seems like it sneaks up on us, and yet it comes around every year right at this time. It is the in four day, four more Sundays, four more Sundays. It will be Christmas. Christmas is on a Sunday this year. We will be gathering. Uh, you open your presents. Come here. We'll sing. We'll take communion. We'll hear the word, and then head back home and take care of the rest of the stuff. But Christmas is a season when a lot of people ask a lot of questions. Uh, they ask questions like, what do you want? <laughs> what, what do you need? They ask questions like, what can I get dad that he won't go out and just buy for himself anyway? Uh, they, they ask all kinds of questions. And of course, the big question for Christmas is, how, how does Santa Claus deliver presents to all of those houses in just one night? Well, you'll be glad to know that Forbes magazine asked that question back in 2018. Forbes magazine actually asked the experts. They inquired of scientists, physicists, Doug. They talked to physicists about this. They talked to jet fuel experts, and they came to one conclusion about how Santa Claus can deliver presents to all of those houses in one night. Their answer was, hmm. Magic, probably, maybe it's magic. I'm just happy that experts can admit that they don't know something every now and then. You ask any parents or grandparents who's been asked the question, and I think they will tell you, honestly, we just make up the answer. We just make something up. That's how we handle legends, you know? We just make something up. That's how we handle legends and often traditions. We just make up a story that sounds good. That, that's not how we handle truth, though. Matters of truth, we dig into. We dig into the questions and we, we ask the hard questions and we seek truth. There's a wonderful proverb in the middle of your Bible. Proverbs 25, verse 2, which simply says, it is the glory of God to conceal things, but it is the glory of kings to seek them out, to search them out. There's, there are big questions in our faith. Big questions about who Jesus is. Questions about His birth. Questions about His life, His death, His resurrection. And questions that go all the way back into eternity. And our answers to those questions are not... Our, questions are not, our answers to those questions are not made up. But we search them out. It is the glory of kings to search things out. We search them out. We find faith. We find answers that are miraculous, that are amazing. But we also find answers that are reasonable, able to be thought through. I read of a survey last Christmas by an organization called Lifeway Research. They do surveys particularly in areas of faith and in churches and Christian practice. But LifeWay Research did a survey last year to find out what the average American believes about Jesus and what they believe about the Christian faith. It was interesting to find that three out of four American adults, three out of four American, these are not just Christians, but three out of four American adults believe that Jesus was born in Bethlehem somewhere around 2,000 years ago. I think that's amazing that... Three-quarters of, of American adults believe that Jesus was an actual real person living an actual life 2,000 years ago. Even more said that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. But there were other questions about beliefs where, where I found the answers to be a little disturbing. 
41% of American adults, only, only 41% I should say, believe that Jesus existed prior to His birth in Bethlehem. Only 41% believe in the eternal existence of Jesus alongside God the Father, alongside God the Son. In other words, more than half of American adults do not believe that Jesus is eternal, that He is equal to God, that He would be a part of what we would come to know as the Trinity. And that is an essential belief in our faith. And, and even more shocking about that, when asked specifically of Christians, 60, only 63% of Christians believe that Jesus had some sort of eternal life before His birth. Only 63%. Which leads me to the realization maybe you don't believe that. Maybe that's not something that you've believed, that you've wrestled with. Maybe you don't believe Jesus is who the Bible says He is, that He is eternal, that He is co-eternal along with the Father, along with the Spirit. And when I, when I read a statistic like that, I have to admit... A big part of the problem is preachers. <laughs> I mean, the Bible tells us that our job is to preach sound doctrine, to wrestle with these things with you and, and help you see the truth that is locked in there in the Scripture. And sometimes we don't do that. Because instead, sometimes we preach happy little sermons just to, just to keep you happy, just to keep you entertained, make sure that, you know, try to see how long you can keep it before Connor gets up and walks out, you know. I don't do very well with him, but. You know, we, we, we try to preach things that will just keep people happy, keep them entertained. The other side of it, while I will take blame as for, I'll take the blame for the preachers, the other side of the problem is it's too easy to go looking for the wrong answers these days. It's too easy just to get on the internet and decide you're doing your, re, your own research and only to find out that uh, the things that you're seeing posted, the things that people are, are putting out there just are not correct. They've not been searched out. And there's times when instead of looking for answers, we go looking for cute little social media posts. And, and, and kind of like the, the Santa question, we just make stuff up. But there are real answers. Real answers that are essential to our faith, to what we believe. Real answers that are essential to who we say Jesus is. And the Bible centers our faith on the truth of the Christmas story. It's where it all begins. The Bible centers our faith on the truth of the Christmas story. It's not about reindeers, though. It's not about the speed of reindeers. And it's not about Santa getting those presents everywhere. It's not even just about the manger or the shepherds and the wise men and the star. It's about who Jesus is. It's about who Jesus has been in eternity. It's about why Jesus came and why we need Him to be who He is. And that is an issue that has been sorted out over over two millennia. And one of the first people to work through that question of who Jesus is was none other than the Apostle Paul. And so today we're going to Galatians. If you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4. Just a few verses. Verses 4-7. through seven. If you want to follow along in those blue Bibles in front of you, it's page 974 there in those blue Bibles. If you have the Bible app on your phone and you want to follow along there, you'll find my notes. If you, if you find the location here, Kansas, Illinois, you'll find my notes there. You'll find the Scripture references. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. It's here where the Apostle Paul writes, "...but when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It might seem kind of odd to start Advent, to start the Christmas season in Galatians of all places, instead of in Matthew with his begats or his star or his wise men or Luke with his shepherds and his angels and his, and his traveling to Bethlehem. It might seem strange to start here, but what Paul gives us here is the centrality of the Christmas story. Paul assures us that Christmas is rooted in history. This is not a fairy tale. This does not begin. This not, does not begin. Once upon a time, a long, long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. It doesn't begin that way. Rather, you hear it. It is, it is located in time. You hear it there in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. That statement there, if you'll excuse the pun, is pregnant with meaning. There is so much wrapped up in that understanding of God's perfect timing when Jesus was born. Historically, there was no better time for God to have sent His Son into the world. We might wonder, why didn't He wait until now? Why didn't He wait until today? With all the technology we've got, with all the ways that we have to share information or misinformation, why, wait? why not wait until now? Why did God do it back then? You know, so much is wrapped up in that perfect timing. Historically, there was no better time for God to send His Son. The vast majority of the known world was under the rule of the Roman Empire. And the Romans, being the conquerors that they were, they connected their empire with Roman roads. And so decades later, after the resurrection, Paul and others could travel from city to city, from place to place, from village to village, and spread the Gospel. Also during that time, the Greek language connected much of the known world and made communication possible between groups of people that were spread out, allowing the Gospel to spread through one common language. It was the perfect time for God to send His Son. And on top of that, when we go back to the Old Testament, there is prophecy after prophecy that tells us that the Messiah would come into the temple in Jerusalem. That the Messiah would enter the temple and that the glory in that moment when the Messiah came in, the glory would be greater than the glory of the previous temple that, that, that Solomon had built. Within 40 years of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, though, within one generation, that temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. Not a single stone remaining on top of another, never to be built again. Historically, societally, prophetically, God's timing was perfect. And most importantly though, it's the fullness of time because God chose to fill that time with meaning, with Himself. Yes, the Bible tells us that Jesus was born just outside of Bethlehem something like 2,000 years ago. But when we go to the Gospel of John, when we, when we see Jesus in the Gospel of John, we see Him before His birth. We see Him as the eternal Word of God. John chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is presented as the Word. In the beginning 
was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is Him eternally. And then we come to verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. In the fullness of time, Jesus stepped into our world from eternity and brought the light of God's love. Ultimately, it's not just about the fullness of time that God arranged politics and road construction and language and religion perfectly to bring His Son into the world. But it's the reality for you and me. He did all of this so that He could step into our lives so that we could know Him, so that we could put our faith in Him. And in His perfect timing, Jesus not only stepped into history, but stepped into your life. And He became the center of our faith. You probably noticed I started in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. So what about verses 1-3? through Never mind what about verses 1-3. through What about the first half of Paul's letter to the Galatians? Why start here in the very middle? Well, we'll get to that later. In fact, next year I think we're going to spend a few months in the book in Paul's letter to the Galatians. But verses 1-3 through tell us just how hopeless we are. Verses 1-3 through tell us that we are enslaved to this world, that there is no way out, there is no escape, that we have no way to save ourselves, there is no way for us to change our destiny. And then verse 4 comes along with the greatest word, don't laugh, but the greatest word you'll ever read, verse 4 comes along with the word, but. But God. And that little word has so much meaning it is a turning point in history it is a turning point in destiny it's a turning point in your life that word but god it is the it's where our faith begins and from verse 4 everything changes again but when the fullness of time had come god sent forth his son born of woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We've been taken from this place of, of, this place of frustration where we are enslaved to sin, where there is no escape. And not just freed of that, but given a relationship with God where we know Him as Father, where we know the presence of His Spirit in our lives. His Holy Spirit comes to us and confirms that relationship with the Father. One thing you should notice about verse 6 is that the Holy Spirit isn't something that we work for. The Holy Spirit is not some achievement that we unlock when we reach a, a certain place in, in our faith. He, he is actually a gift. There are times when I hear Christians talking about the Holy Spirit and talking about our faith, and they seem so uncertain about their salvation. I hear people say, oh, I hope I'm saved. I, I hope I've been good enough. And they seem so uncertain about the Holy Spirit in their lives. I hope He's with me. I hope I have the Holy Spirit. I hope I'm good enough to have the Holy Spirit. Everything Paul is writing here is to give us confidence in what Jesus has already promised you. And I hope you don't miss it there in verse 6. God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. There they are. Father, Holy Spirit, and Son. All of them listed in the same verse that same survey I cited earlier said that only 72% of people believe in the Trinity. I don't think that's because we don't believe our Bible anymore. I think it's because we've stopped digging into these truths. 
We've stopped digging in and, and seeing what's really there. And when it comes to the center of our faith, what does it look like? Who does it look like? What is Jesus? And, and why is He at the center of our faith? Because when we find Jesus at the center of our faith, then we see Him as our hope, as the hope of our salvation. Paul wants us to understand not only that Jesus came at the right time in the right condition, born of a woman, born under the law, but he wants us to know why and what Jesus does for us. Verse 5 again, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There are two images, two words there that describe what Jesus has done for us. One of them you're very familiar with, the word adoption. Some of you may have experienced that. Some of you may have been on the receiving end of an adoption or the giving end of an adoption. But you've, you've welcomed someone into your family with a new inheritance. Whereas before there was maybe poverty. Where before there was loneliness. Now here is an heir. Paul would say a son. By the way, he says son because it was only sons in that culture who received an inheritance from the Father. They're the ones who received the estate. And so spiritually, we are all sons of God. But the other image he uses is so important, but it's, it's one that's difficult for us to capture in our culture. He says we were redeemed. What does that even mean to us today? Because when, when I think of the word redeem, the only thing I can think of is coupons. You know, you go to the Dollar General and you get you buy something and they give you that coupon that says if you come back on Saturday, you get $5 off 25. And you hold on to those and you wait until Saturday and you go stock up on all the stuff you need and you get your $5 off, you feel like you won. You feel like you're the big winner because you redeemed. That's not the concept of redeem at all. In, in that world, in, in Paul's world, in, in Jesus' world, to be redeemed was to was to be bought out of slavery. To be redeemed was to be set free of, of the bondage of your debt. And in our world today, even at the lowest level of poverty, we don't have an understanding of the need for redemption to be bought out of our indebtedness, to be bought out of our slavery. We don't understand that, that my debt can not only cause me to lose everything I own, but my debt could cause me to lose my family, to lose my friends, to lose my standing, to lose my name. And yet that's what Jesus comes to buy back, to redeem us, to make us heirs of God, sons of God. That's the hope of salvation in a, in a nutshell. And the only source of that hope is Jesus. I hear a lot of really nice sentimental things being said about faith. I see a lot of wonderful Christian posts on Facebook. I see a lot of pretty pictures of sunsets and flowers and Sometimes there's a picture of a, of a cloud that's been photoshopped so it looks like angel wings. And somebody will throw a Scripture in there, usually out of context, and make us feel good. What happens when the hard stuff in life hits? What happens when we start asking questions? Or what happens when our kids and our grandkids start asking questions? If all we've got are pretty pictures that have been photoshopped along with some cute little saying... Are they going to buy into that? Are they going to buy into the reason to participate in what we're doing here and why we come and do this week after week? Our hope is worth digging into. Uh, it's worth the work of learning how to defend our faith. There are so many people in this world who outright reject faith. 
And very often I, I hear them, I listen to them, I read them, and I hear what, what it is that they're rejecting, and I think to myself, I don't believe that either. <laughs> That's not the Jesus that I believe in. But they've been presented with this as the truth of who Jesus is. But beyond the tinsel, beyond the, the lights, beyond the nativity display, if we don't understand the importance of what the Bible says about Jesus, then they won't understand it either. The Bible centers our faith on the truth of the Christmas story. I want to tell you a Christmas story today. Except it didn't take place at Christmas. Still, it's a Christmas story. And it's true. It's not one of these made-up Christmas stories. It doesn't have anything to do with reindeer. Not initially, anyway. But you know, what, what we've come... We, we believe, what we believe comes from the Bible. But it took years of studying. And it took years of talking. It took years of writing and debating to understand the mysteries of faith. Uh, the mysteries of faith had to be uncovered. And we had to come to this better understanding of who Jesus is. In A.D. 325, so 325 years approximately after the birth of Jesus, the emperor, Constantine, called for a council to come together in the city of Nicaea. And the job of this council was to talk about, okay, who is Jesus? What is He? How do we understand Him in relation to God the Father, in relation to the Holy Spirit? So 300 bishops, those are leaders of churches, kind of like superintendents maybe over several churches, 300 bishops along with a bunch of other people came together to debate in the city of Nicaea exactly who Jesus is. They came together to lay out what we now know, what we now understand as the doctrine of the Trinity. Now among all of those that came together was a man. He was not a bishop, but he was a priest. He was from Egypt, and his name was Arius. And Arius came to present the Jesus that he had been preaching in Egypt about. And as Arius began to speak and speak and speak, he pulled out his scroll and he began to read on and on and on about who he believed Jesus to be. And Arius maintained that Jesus could not be equal to the Father because Jesus is not made out of the same stuff as the Father. I don't know what stuff he was looking for, but Arius said that Jesus could not be equal to the Father because He's not made out of the same stuff as the Father. And all of these 300 bishops sat there listening to Arius and I think they sat and they nodded and they stroked their really nice beards and they, they listened to what he had to say. Except for one bishop. A bishop from the town of Myra. The name of the town was Myra. That bishop sat there listening to Arius and he started getting hot. Because what he heard from Arius denying the divinity of Jesus, denying that He is one with the Father, denying that Jesus is co-eternal with the Father, that He has been there since the very beginning, that He is the one that John proclaims as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Arius is denying all of this. And this bishop from the town of Myra begins to realize this is heresy. This is damnable. And while everybody else was sitting respectfully listening, the bishop from Myra stood 
walked across the room. Arius is still reading and droning on and on. He took a, he was filibustering there. He just filling as much time as possible. The bishop from Myra got nose to nose, maybe not quite that close with Arius. And as he continued to read, the bishop from Myra just knocked him down. He was immediately stripped of his robes. He was no longer considered a bishop. And he was thrown in jail because the emperor said, we don't do that here. He was released from jail the next day. And he was reinstated as a bishop. He was given his robes back. That bishop from Myra, we don't call him a bishop anymore because the Catholic Church declared him to be a saint. So we call him a saint. And his name was Saint Nicholas. Yes, that Saint Nicholas. You know you're bad. You know that you've been bad when Santa Claus walks across the room and slaps you down. You know you've been very bad that year. I have a theory that he probably slapped him and said, you're getting nothing this year. That's where we get Santa Claus. But you know, Santa Claus, I mean, St. Nicholas, St. Nicholas knew that the truth of who Jesus was, who Jesus is, makes a difference. It makes a difference in how we see that God did not leave us in our sin, did not leave us in our despair, did not leave us in the trap of death, but that God actually stepped into history, into time, that He came born of a virgin, born under the law. It makes a difference in how we proclaim the Gospel of a new King, of a new hope, a new faith. And it makes a difference in how we see ourselves as redeemed, as set free, as sons of God who receive an inheritance, it makes a difference in how we see our eternity. And that's why He's worthy. Now I think, by the way, St. Nicholas was not happy about his actions. Don't go around slapping people. It's not right. Just because Santa did it once. Don't go around doing that. But you know, somehow... There in that statement, in the fullness of time, God sent His Son. We have a bridge between John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, that He was eternally there, He was eternally with God. To Him coming into the world, and then we have a bridge that leads us into the book of Revelation where we read that there is only one who is worthy to take the scroll. There is only one who is worthy of worship. There is only one who is worthy of our adoration. And that's Jesus. When we take communion together, when we share this time together, it is a reminder not only of who He was, not only of why He came, but of who He continues to be and how He's changed us. We take the body, we take the blood, and we remind ourselves that we are included in His story because He stepped into our stories. I'm going to pray. We'll sing. And then we'll... We'll take together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for not leaving us in the mess that our world had created, that we had created in our world. We thank you for stepping into history, for sending your Son. And we thank you that in the fullness of time, you stepped into our hearts, you stepped into our lives. And through faith, we came to see ourselves as your children. 
We thank you for the hope that brings us and the forgiveness that we know through your son. Today we take his body and we, we, take, uh, we take the bread remembering his body broken for us. We take the cup remembering his blood shed for us. We take, we take part in this realizing that we now have a part in his story. And as we have come to find faith, as we have come to find hope, there is a world of people that need to know who Jesus is. I pray that we I pray that uh, through our faith, through our love, that we're showing them an accurate picture of Him, a loving picture of someone who cares for them, who loves them, who has died for them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.